Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies. I'm your host today, Brian Hamilton, and I'm joined by Ermi Engineer Willoughby, Assistant Professor of History at Murray State University and author of the book Yellow Fever, Race and Ecology in 19th Century New Orleans. It was published in December by LSU Press. Ermi Engineer Willoughby, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Ermi, I wonder if we could start with you telling our listeners about your background and what led you to become a professional historian. Well, um, my background, right, at the moment I'm uh, an assistant professor at Murray State University. I started here uh, about three years ago, and uh, I completed my, my graduate training at UC Santa Cruz. I'm a historian of disease ecology and medicine, and I look at uh, histories of disease and the environment from a global perspective. Um, My PhD advisor in Santa Cruz, uh, Terry Burke, Edmund Burke III, is a historian. (laughs) He he kind of, uh, towards the end of his career, turned towards environmental history, and that really influenced um, my turn to environmental history. I, I worked on a master's project on um, race and medicine in the uh, antebellum South. And then I became mm-hmm. more interested in diseases themselves rather than just ideas about disease and treatments for disease. And I, you know, to try to hone in on a specific project for my dissertation, I wanted to pick one disease in one location and then use it as a focus for setting larger trends in ecological and epidemiological history. So I picked um, yellow fever in New Orleans because it seemed like a really rich area for research. Yeah, that's great. And it certainly turned out to be so. Um, well, your book is just, it's just fascinating. And and there are a couple things um, about, specifically about how you put it together, sort of technically, that I especially admire about it. Um, and, and one is your ability to telescope in and out um, from the local to the global and to write across scales like that. And the other is that it's simultaneously this very, you know, very high level engagement with historical scholarship on yellow fever and debates in the fields of medical history, environmental history and others, um, while also being a very welcoming book. Uh, I mean, you take a lot of care to help your readers who aren't fully versed in this literature understand the geography, the epidemiology, the historiography. Um, so I was hoping that we could start with um, with you helping us get some of those basics down. Um, And if we want to understand yellow fever in the 19th century South, what do we first have to understand about the disease and its sort of long history in the Atlantic world? Hard to know exactly where to to start with that question. Um, I think one of the more interesting things about my work, one of the discoveries that I I made along the way that really uh, got me going was that uh, yellow fever in the Americas is a there's a narrative of yellow fever that begins in the Americas in the mid 17th century as a result of the Atlantic slave trade. And then there are about two centuries of epidemics um, throughout across the Atlantic seaboard, especially in the Caribbean. And um, 
the the story of the origins of yellow fever in West Africa are a bit muddier. Mm -hmm. So what I found is that the earliest records of yellow fever in West Africa come from the mid uh, 18th century. And um, my, the, my, the book starts out with my exploration into why there's that gap and how we can trace the, uh, the, the history of yellow fevers move from Africa to the Americas, even though there was uh, more than a century of epidemics in the Americas before it was recorded in West Africa. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was really fascinating. Someone that doesn't know this history all that well is, is that there's, you know, it's, it's really less revealing to say that yellow fever came from Africa than to say that, as you do in chapter two, that yellow fever epidemics really came out of sugar plantations. And that those, that's more, is, yeah. is that, right? Is that a better way to think about it as a shorthand? That, that is, certainly. And, you know, to try to map out, in my, my book, I tried to include uh, quite a few maps to illustrate the, you know, the rise of yellow fever in certain locations at different points in time. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that just that history of its origins and then the era of epidemics in the late 18th and 19th centuries is an important aspect of yellow fever to understand before looking at the kind of nitty gritty of the cycles of transmission. Um, so there are three different mo cycles of transmission for yellow fever and uh, urban or epidemic yellow fever is the, the form of yellow fever that was most prominent in the Atlantic world. And that, that, uh, uh, that, that form of yellow fever is uh present in cities and spread by the Aedes aegypti mosquito. Mm -hmm. And it differs from the sylvan or jungle cycle of yellow fever that uh, uh, is transmitted between wild mosquitoes in forested regions and non-human primates, um, monkeys, in uh, the tropics of West Africa, Central West Africa, and in the Americas later on. Um, and then the third transmission cycle is an intermediate cycle. Sometimes it's called the savanna cycle of uh, yellow fever jumping the species barrier from primate from non-human primates to humans. And um, there are a whole variety of mosquitoes that can transmit the yellow fever virus. And in the intermediate cycle, there would be a combination of Aedes aegypti and then other um, wild treehold mosquitoes as well. Yeah, and, and, so, and why was it? Do you think that that uh, sugar plantations became such fruitful places for the for the origins of these epidemics? Well, um, sugar plantations, and this is something that has been um, studied by other Caribbeanists, and um, notably John McNeil in, in his book Mosquito Empires. But there is a connection between sugar plantations and the emergence of yellow fever epidemics because of various environmental changes that sugar plantations required, um, clearing the land, um, clearing forests to build plantations uh, is the first thing which ends up uh, creating new uh, creating new, new niches for Aedes aegypti mosquitoes mm -hmm. that uh, breed mainly in man-made containers and clay pots. So, um, by uh, 
deforesting large regions and um, eliminating bird and bat species that feed on mosquitoes and also by physically creating new places for Aedes aegypti to breed in cisterns and in all of the debris from sugar plantations, uh, these, these areas became uh, thriving environments for Aedes aegypti in the Caribbean and then also in New Orleans. And uh, a, final, a final factor might be that uh, male Aedes aegypti mosquitoes would uh, feed on sucrose. Right. While female Aedes aegypti mosquitoes fed on sucrose, but um, uh, also on human blood. But the presence of sugar, cane, um, and bagasse, and sugar syrup on plantations might have also um, increased the lifespan and uh, attracted more mosquitoes. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, so how, how does this kind of understanding of, of the dynamics of Atlantic yellow fever um, in, in the 17th, in this 18th century, um, help you make sense of what goes on in New Orleans in those early days? And, and so, for instance, you, you say we don't see any yellow, major yellow fever epidemics in New Orleans until about 1817. Um, and so, um, is that true? Or Yeah, there, there are a few epidemics. There's one in the first ones are in 1795, 1796, and there are a few other smaller epidemics, but really the um, the beginning of the the period of um, really frequent epidemics is uh, in 1817 and afterwards where there was an epidemic at least every other year, every other summer. How do you explain that based on what you've kind of under, what you've learned from the Atlantic world? Well, you know, ap applying those studies of sugar plantations in the Caribbean to um, the rise of sugar plantations in uh, the in New Orleans and around New Orleans, which began um, at the beginning of the 19th century, there are a lot of parallels in the ways that um, epidemics coincided with the construction of sugar plantations and uh, the digging of canals. And then um, in New Orleans in particular, I wanted to, to look at the effects of the rise of sugar more broadly and mm -hmm. the way that sugar really built the city of New Orleans, that all of the money coming in from sugar and the jobs created by the sugar industry attracted immigrants and newcomers who settled in the city and in one way or another were, um, were able to... Um, find jobs and profit from living in the city because of this sugar industry, so which was related to shipping and um, the domestic slave trade um, and industrial development in the city for sugar mills and transportation infrastructure to, to move sugar out of New Orleans. Yeah. Can you help us understand how some of the demographic makeup of New Orleans, um, how that uh affected um, or how it shaped the, the kind of pop population immunity or acquired immunity, how all that works together? Yeah, that's actually, that's a really important um, point to, to understanding uh, the patterns of yellow fever. Um, so uh, there's uh, the only way that a person can become immune to yellow fever is by contracting the disease and then surviving. And then that person will have acquired immunity to to the yellow fever virus um, and for there to be an epidemic there has to be a large host population of non-immune 
individuals. So in New Orleans, uh, epidemics would often coincide with periods in which there would be uh, migrations of uh, non-immune newcomers to New Orleans. So in the uh, early phases of uh, the growth of New Orleans in the 19th century, in the the, um, uh, post-colonial period, I guess you could call it, there were waves of migrations from Saint-Domingue after the Haitian Revolution, yeah. uh, migrations from uh, Cuba as well. And these included a large proportion of sugar planters and uh, Creole or uh, Caribbean-born sugar experts and also enslaved workers. And during that early period of migration, Um, There were some smaller outbreaks of yellow fever, but because the majority of the population had come from the Caribbean or West Africa, um, many people had encountered yellow fever before they they arrived in New Orleans and epidemics were not as um, bad in terms of overall mortality rates. But then um, with uh, the creation of the state of Louisiana and Um, migrations of uh, Anglo-Americans from the Eastern United States and African-American slaves from the Eastern United States as well. There was a growing population of people that had never been exposed to yellow fever. Um, And that combined with by the 1830s, there were more um, immigrants uh, from Europe Mm -hmm. arriving at the port of New Orleans every year. And that um, th- those numbers uh, swelled, especially in the late 1840s and 1850s. So um, those groups ended up, um, immigrants especially from Ireland and Germany, um, ended up being the the most uh, susceptible proportion of the population. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so then in chapter three, you move from all this material analysis to so this cultural um, study and you explore how a city that started seeing regular yellow fever epidemics, like you're saying every other year or so came to think about who was falling ill and why they were falling ill. Um, and you find what you term an ideological obsession with race, um, in many of these discussions. Um, how did that changing understandings of susceptibility to yellow fever track with changing racial categories in New Orleans? Um, yeah, chapter three. I'm I'm glad you brought up the the kind of dual perspectives that I I take to my uh, approach um, to studying yellow fever because I tried to focus on the material elements that led to the prevalence of yellow fever, but then to also step back and to um, study the different ways that uh, doctors and other residents of New Orleans. Uh, understood the causes of yellow fever, and then um, what was uh, really what really stood out to me in reading these sources is that a lot of New Orleanians and visitors as well had extensive commentaries on uh, individuals that they perceived as immune to yellow fever based on a number of different categories, um, including um, age and gender and social people's social behaviors. But um, most uh, most importantly, uh, residents and doctors looked at someone's status as either uh, Creole or native to the Gulf Coast, and then 
uh, increasingly over the 19th century, they became more and more interested in someone's racial identity as a factor that uh, caused a genetic immunity, which they imagined because there was uh, at least as far as we know, there's no evidence of genetic immunity to yellow fever that can be passed down. Yeah. And so, and, and how, so you have kind of racial ideas playing, um, playing a role in a couple ways, right? You have both the, what they're saying about racial categories and, and the susceptibility. And you also seem to repeatedly note, note places where you suspect or can tell that there's sort of biased archival records or data collection going on. Thinking of like the Sanitary Commission report, the city data, that sort of thing, where they're probably undercounting um, deaths and things like that. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I, you know, I was. It, it's so um, common in records, and especially in the conclusions of doctors and other um, medical reports, that there is a perceived and uh, observed difference in the victims of yellow fever. Um, in, in that people who were described in these records as white uh, were more susceptible to yellow fever and there was a greater proportion of white victims. And then people who were described as um, people of color or uh, colored individuals were, there were fewer of them in the records and um, physicians made claims that, you know, things like even if people of color uh, contracted yellow fever, they would be more likely to survive or that uh, mixed race individuals were more likely to survive than whites, and that you know, and they use these terms like uh, pure, pure-blooded mm-hmm. um, people of African descent were uh, not susceptible to yellow fever or were naturally immune to yellow fever. And these ideas were present, you know, since since some of the earliest, you know, in the late 18th and early 19th century, in some of those earliest records, there are uh, a lot of doctors and others that will uh, call attention to some kind of racial immunity. But this idea became really entrenched in the literature and it was kind of accepted wisdom by the, by the 1850s and especially after the Civil War um, in New Orleans, uh, a lot of physicians and others abandoned their ideas about Creole immunity. Mm-hmm. I mean, for a long time, yellow fever was called a stranger's disease mm-hmm. because it was very evident that uh, the majority of people who succumbed to yellow fever were newcomers or immigrants. But by the post-Civil War era, um, most physicians acknowledged that there was no such thing as Creole immunity and that's... Um, Immunity was based um, not on creolism or long-term residence in New Orleans, but on uh, someone's racial background. Yeah. So it's interesting to to see how um, a lot of these doctors and um, other kind of public health board officials looked at data and still came to this conclusion, even if they were simultaneously recording many um, victims who were, were not white. Um, so in, in this chapter, I tried to um, hypothesize about why there were so many um, not, or why, why non-white victims are not represented in those records. It does seem like there was some undercounting, um, but even more more importantly than that, 
There is also um, just in terms of the, if you were to look at the demography of New Orleanians who stayed in the city during epidemics and children who would have been likely to be exposed to the virus, um, those populations were often um, mixed Creoles, mixed race peoples, and um, uh, African Americans. Mm -hmm. So the the data in that sense, even based on just um, observations, would end up kind of privileging the counting of immigrants and um, who, who all would be labeled as white in the records. Right, right. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, so then next in the next chapter, during the Civil War, and sort of straight through until the famous massive epidemic in 1878 that really um, takes 5,000 people, kills 5,000 people in Memphis, famously, um, there are far fewer yellow fever epidemics during the war in, in, in and around New Orleans. Um, how do you explain that? Yeah, in, in the fourth chapter, I, I focus on the, the Civil War and Reconstruction era, and it does, it does stand out, um, the Civil War, especially after the occupation of, of New Orleans in 1862, um, stands out as a period that New Orleans was free from epidemics. There was a small, smallish epidemic in 1867, but um, during, the, during the war, there was a federal blockade and um, all kinds of, in addition to the blockade, quarantine and sanitary measure, measures were implemented by uh, union officers. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned there's, there's like a, a battle between pro-quarantine folks and pro-sanitary measure folks. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. There, you know, that battle had been going on for a while, but in general, in New Orleans, anything that would come in the way of um, having uh, expedient uh, trade, trade relations Mm -hmm. from New Orleans to surrounding ports, um, anything that interfered with trade would be um, kind of, uh, problematic to members of local boards that determined public sure, health. Sure. So there, there were these debates and they've been, you know, historians have written a lot about debates re- about public health, quarantine versus sanitary reforms. And, you know, it's hard to come up with a, a proper uh, conclusion about the effectiveness of mm-hmm. either. Um, it would seem that um, quarantines, you know, and sanitation shouldn't be effective in controlling <laughs> yellow fever since uh, the disease is spread by mosquitoes who can escape, you know, quarantine, even if a ship is quarantined and uh, uh, sanitation doesn't do much to control mosquitoes. Right. But um, both of these procedures would end up being somewhat effective in at least um preventing the rapid transmission of yellow fever from the port to the Mm -hmm. city. Um, Some sanitary measures uh, like using carbolic uh, cleansing with carbolic acid um, or the smoking out of vessels, those measures might have repelled mosquitoes and there's some data to support that. Hmm. Um, But most of all, I I would say that during the Civil War, the the blockade and kind of the decline of sugar production, um, the um, prevention of illegal slave ships or slaves to appear in New Orleans, 
And then in general, just the stopping of traffic between the Caribbean and New Orleans is the, the most reasonable explanation of why um, yellow fever didn't cause an outbreak that many New Orleanians who were um, sympathetic with the Confederacy uh, hoped would end up killing the majority of Union soldiers like um, had happened um, during some of the, the conflicts in Latin America where European uh, soldiers died in huge numbers of yellow right, fever. Right, right, absolutely. Well, then in chapter five, um, you return to that cultural question about the entanglements of yellow fever epidemiology and ideologies of race. Um, but now, after the war, at the time of, for instance, 1878 epidemic, and in the decades that followed, germ theory has transformed the way people were thinking about the relationships among diseases, bodies, environments. So what did this mean for how racial difference figured into understandings of yellow fever? Um, yeah, so in, uh, a after 1878, uh, mo more than, than ever before, yellow fever researchers tried to search for a yellow fever germ. Hmm. And a lot of people, ha uh, you know, with microscopic technology, um, identifying bacteria that caused, uh, a whole host of other diseases, it seemed like if someone studied the the bile and the autop and autopsy bodies of yellow fever victims, that they would be able to find and isolate some kind of yellow fever germ. So it took took a while um, for uh, uh, researchers to start looking at um, mosquitoes as a potential vector of yellow fever. And um, in, in chapter five, I discuss how um, in 1881, Carlos Finlay, who was a researcher based in Cuba, um, he worked uh, with the uh, Havana Yellow Fever Commission that was sent to Cuba from um, the U.S. It was a federal organization designed to study yellow fever and its causes and prevention. Um, but um, after after this organization left Cuba, Carlos Finlay began to uh, study the role of mosquitoes as a vector. And he wrote an article in 1881 identifying the mosquito and uh, the mosquito as a, as a cause of yellow fever. But for a long time, for uh, more than two decades, American and other North American um, public health researchers didn't pay much attention to Finlay's mosquito theory. Mm. And it was after the Spanish-American War that, um, that they began studying uh, these alternative causes. I think I might be getting into chapter six a little bit. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Um, and so how does, this, how, does, how does germ theory affect how they're thinking about the racial kind of causality or, or relationships? Well, yeah, that's that's an interesting question because uh, in uh, in this chapter about um, the way that people understand race and health and the environment, I I don't think there is really an explicit connection between germ theory and ideas about race. But um, in the epidemic of 1878, which was, um, as you said, uh, the, the worst epidemic. Of yellow fever in in American history, um, during that epidemic, there were um, 
huge uh, numbers of African Americans in the Mississippi Valley who uh, had yellow mm -hmm. fever. And a lot of observers wrote about how they had thought that African Americans were immune, but in this particular epidemic, um, they sickened and, and right. died in um, large proportions similar to white communities. But what's what's strange is that um, even even though they observed African American um, victims uh, in the conclusions of a lot of uh, public health studies, um, they continued to believe that there must be some sort of racial immunity to yellow fever. Um, it's it's a kind of disconnect in that people will express surprise at seeing African-American <laughs> victims, but it doesn't at this point um, change their really deeply held ideas of um, racial difference being expressed through yellow fever immunity. Because scientific racism was really on the rise at the same time, right? So these are kind of fixed ideas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So people speak about race in a, a little bit differently than in the earlier part of the 19th century, um, because uh, as you said, because of um, the growth of scientific racism during this period. Yeah. And then, well, then in, in the um, aforementioned sixth chapter, uh, you close the book with this sweeping synthesis of the interwoven histories of Euro-American imperialism and the field of what was then called tropical medicine around the turn of the century. You cover a ton of ground <laughs> for one chapter and, and you really bring into view what you call a military medical complex at work on several continents at the same time. And What's perhaps most surprising in this chapter, maybe, or certainly to me, is that, is that you urge us to see New Orleans as a central and maybe up to now underappreciated player in this major story. Can you, can you just kind of sketch us out the, the view of, of this phenomenon from, from New Orleans? Yeah. So um, in New Orleans, the, the, you know, there were not really, even, even after uh, the mosquito vector was known and um, you know, if you if you read about the history of yellow fever eradication, often um, uh, more recently uh, studies will acknowledge the role of Carlos Finlay, but um, they'll focus on the uh, Reed Board of the uh, U.S. Yellow Fever Commission that was led by Walter Reed in systematically studying the role of mosquitoes, and then um, Reed and others. Um, William Gorgas, in particular, um, other uh, people that are associated with um, the U.S. Yellow Fever Commission ended up going into um, first Havana, but then the Panama Canal Zone and other regions and um, wiping out mosquitoes um, through, through a number of different mosquito control measures and effectively, um, you know, at, 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 as they thought at the time, eradicating yellow fever from these cities. Um, so in New Orleans, um, I frame New Orleans as part of this larger story of um, the U.S. Uh, Public Health and Marine Hospital Service going into areas um, in Latin America that were dominated by American companies or that um, were U.S. possessions after the Spanish-American War. And... Um, experimenting with these mosquito control measures as a way to ensure that these areas would be safe for uh, American businesses to 
um, mm-hmm. invest in. So um, the the book ends with the establishment of the uh, School of Tropical Medi- or the School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine at Tulane University that is funded by the United Fruit right. Company to um, to conduct research on tropical diseases, including not just yellow fever and malaria, but um, other diseases that seem to to plague areas where fruit plantations were being established in the early 20th century. Yeah. And so so you you ask us to think about New Orleans as a similar kind of of, um, metropole for this kind of scientific, medical, imperial sort of, uh, um, you know, projects. Yeah, exactly. And New Orleans, you know, even after, um, even after yellow fever was, uh, you know, supposedly eradicated in Havana, there were, there was little effort to attack yellow fever in New Orleans. And there was um, a small epidemic in 1901, but people in general didn't want to change, change their urban infrastructure and kill mosquitoes. Um, some people were not convinced of the mosquito theory, but I think others thought it was too much of an inconvenience to actually um, systematically get residents of New Orleans to to cover their cisterns, mm-hmm. um, to spray for mosquitoes. Um, so in 1905, this uh, eradication campaign um, was only enacted and only successful because of the experience that uh, the uh, public health service had in these other colonial spaces in Latin America. Well, then in your, in your epilogue, you uh, say a little bit about, about what you term the reemergence of yellow fever since World War II, um, kind of globally. And I think I saw last week in a, I think it was a Vox story that, is, is, is it right? 300 people in Brazil have died in the last like nine months or something from yellow fever or some number that really caught me off guard. Um, and I don't know if that's exactly accurate, but, um, but, what, what kind of questions does, does doing this scholarship kind of give you about when you, when you look at uh, reports of yellow fever in the world today, what, what kind of questions are you asking that we may not ask? Yeah, you know, in the epilogue, I, I wanted to bring the story of yellow fever into the present. You know, it looks looks at a time and a region um, in, in tropical Africa that I don't, um, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. an expert on that period or that region, but I think when, you know, to to look at yellow fever as something that's beyond a story of the Atlantic world and that when yellow fever epidemics declined in most, um, most of the Atlantic world, they spiked in tropical West Africa and then new endemic zones Mm. emerged in tropical Africa, including in East Africa, where there had never been any reports of the disease until um, the 1950s. So I think uh, when we study the origins of yellow fever in Africa and then kind of the current situation with tropical West Africa being the, the place in which um, uh, the vast majority of yellow fever cases are that um, I would, you know, encourage people to, you know, who are studying the disease in the 20th century to look more closely at environmental change within Africa and urbanization in relation to yellow fever outbreaks, um, because numerically, yellow fever is 
is more of a problem today than it was during the era of epidemics that people focus on. And um, sylvan yellow fever, jungle yellow fever in uh, tropical West Africa and in Brazil, um, those reservoirs of yellow fever are very difficult to measure, but um, seem th that zone of, fev of yellow fever seems to have expanded um, quite significantly over the course of the 20th century. Yeah, scary. You're just back from uh, the annual meeting of the American Society for Environmental History, um, and and you said you're on a panel for yeah, yellow fever there. And I wonder, like, what kind of work are other historians doing on this that you're excited about, or maybe what are some of the questions that that those grad students out there should be asking about about this disease and its history? Yeah, I, I, it was a really great meeting at the ASCH this year, and I was fortunate enough to be on a panel that was focused on um, ideas about yellow fever immunity. Um, and I think, uh, especially after um, Mariola Espinoza published an article about debates about historiographical and historical debates about yellow hmm. fever immunity that definitively show that yellow fever immunity is mm -hmm. imagined and that there's no genetic immunity, that acquired immunity is reinterpreted as genetic immunity. Um, across, you know, the, um, in history and then, um, across different historiographies as well. Um, so since then, it's been interesting to think of new ways of understanding the way that people conceived of immunity. And that's what the, uh, the panel I was on was about. I'm, I'm looking into the ideas that people had about environments and certain, um, uh, regions being immune to yellow fever rather than just looking at uh, the immunity of individual bodies and based on mm. their race and creolism and other other factors like that. Um, and then uh, one of my colleagues, um, Catherine Oliverius um, at Stanford, she's working on some really interesting work on the idea of immunocapital mm. um, that people capitalized off of their perceived huh. immunity. So there's a lot of a lot of interesting work being done about um, different perceptions um, of yellow fever immunity and safety from. Wow, from thank disease. you for sharing that. Um, before we say goodbye, I'm hoping you might tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. Um, I noticed on Amazon that you've, you're co-authoring a pedagogy volume that Duke is publishing this fall called "A Primer for Teaching Women Gender and Sexuality in World History." That sounds really exciting. Oh, yes. Um, thank you. So <laughs> that book should be coming out um, in the fall of this year. It's co-authored with Mary Wiesner-Hanks, um, who has written, uh, I want to say, dozens <laughs> of, of books um, on women and gender and sexuality um, and other topics. Um, but that's part of a series on teaching world history um, with Duke University Press. And I do try to, you know, write about pedagogy in addition to my own um, particular mm -hmm. research interests. So um, there's that. I'm uh, also uh, some of the work that I presented at the ASEH on ideas of the health, ideas about the health and immunity of environments. I'm working on turning that into okay. an article. And I guess uh, my future research, uh, kind of similar to the research that I, I presented in the book, I, I want to work more on trying to construct an epidemiological history of 
uh, diseases in the Gulf South and Mississippi Valley region. Mm. So going beyond yellow fever, I think that studying how um, malaria spread and became endemic in certain places um, in the Mississippi Valley, um, tracing uh, outbreaks of cholera. I think that um, remapping the rise and spread of these uh, diseases in the South is a project that I'm foresee working on. Well, Ermi, thank you so much for your time. I'm, I'm sure I'll refer back to this book frequently in the years to come, and I'll, I'll be keeping an eye out for everything you, you do coming up. Oh, thank you. That sounds great. <laughs>